Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. Let's go to God in prayer. Holy God, in this precious hour, we pause and gather to hear your word, and to do so, we break from our work responsibilities and our play. We move from our fears that overwhelm and from our ambitions that are too strong. And we pray that you would free us in these moments from every distraction so that we can focus and listen, that we might hear, and, oh Lord, in some way, if it be your will, that we might change. And I pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. About a year ago, I sat with a group of of wonderful women who are the leadership circle of our Monday night women's Bible study and our Thursday morning circle of women's study. And we were just talking about what we would do in the coming year. And somebody asked me this question. They said, if you could only teach one book in the Bible, what would that book be? And I, um, I, I wonder what you would have answered. And that probably, it, you know, instantly it might come to you, the, the book that you would want to share with somebody. But I think in order to answer it in the way maybe I was coming from, you need a little context, because context is always significant, whether you're reading the Bible or whether you're with another person. So the context here is with, that I was with a group of people that were Christians, they, they were Christians, they, they were people who knew the gospel, they knew the gospel story and were committed to Jesus Christ and were followers of the Lord. They were deep, they're deeply connected to the community and, and that lives out the principles that are taught in scripture. So this was a group of believers that were asking me this question. And in that context, there could only be one answer for me. Always has been and always will be, and that's Exodus. Why? What on earth does this story about a nomadic civilization, the birth of a nation, so to speak, of slaves, have to do with us as Christians and as modern-day people? Well, I think that one of the most significant reasons that this is so significant to me, why I, I feel like this is an absolute must, that every, really, every, every person who follows Jesus should know about Exodus is, is because of this. First of all, that it's the story of salvation of God's people that Jesus grew up with. These are Jesus' scriptures. This, are, these are the, this is the story that informed Jesus, that shaped his faith. This is the story where Jesus got his understanding of how God related to the world. And put aside all of the thinking that you have about Jesus mysteriously being having uh, uh, knowledge of heaven and, and all of that, just put that aside and know that Jesus was fully man, fully human. And so for, for Jesus to have that edge, uh, it's, it's a mystery that we don't quite understand. But I do know that Jesus became a rabbi. And unless Jesus was fully immersed in the Torah, the five... Uh, first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, he could not have been a rabbi. And that's what he taught in the synagogues. 
So this story was extremely important to Jesus. Not only was it important to Jesus, but Jesus lived out the whole Exodus story in his own ministry. Like Israel, he was called out of Egypt from Matthew. He's tempted in the wilderness, Mark. He celebrates Passover, which originated in Exodus, Mark and Matthew. He's identified himself as the Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians. He's also identified as a supernatural rock that followed Israel into the wilderness. And if you haven't studied Exodus, you may not know that story. But 1 Corinthians identifies Jesus. He assumes the role of the new Moses or the instructing God of Exodus 20 as he teaches his disciples from the mountainside. He goes up on a mountain and teaches and down on a plain. And in the most remarkable uh, move of all, Israel's God tabernacles, and that means is contained. Israel God tabernacles in the very person of Jesus, and that's from John. So in the Exodus story, we have God being tabernacled by something that God had instructed them to build and to take with them. In the New Testament, we have God being tabernacled in Jesus. So this is the story that Jesus grew up on. This is the story that developed his sense of purpose and mission and these are the scriptures of Jesus. That's, that's the first and, and foundationally the most important reason for me. Jesus quotes Exodus. He insinuates Exodus. And he assumes his followers, he assumes their remembrance of Exodus. They were all became very devout Jews in following this rabbi. And he wants that in order for them to recognize, in order for them to see the God who hears the cries, the God who sees the pain, the God who comes when it's called, the God who liberates, the God who stays and provides, and the God who ultimately sends out all of us to do exactly the same thing that he sent out Christ to do. To, to fully grasp, I, I believe, to fully grasp the uh, depth and the enormity of the New Testament as an ongoing divine enterprise, a, a continuing story of an unchanging God, you have to go back to Exodus. You have to go back to this story that is still the mainstay of the Jewish people. It's still the story that informs us and encourages and inspires us today. And it also constitutes an invitation because we look around at the world and our society and we see all the displaced people today. All the refugees and those who are wandering aimlessly trying to find a home. And all of a sudden we hear ourselves asking these questions and it's good to return to a deep source a deep resource of faith that comes to us from uh, the most compelling ancient truths from this story. So at the center and core of the Exodus uh, story is God. That's the central location. And the most comprehensive term, if you want to describe what God is doing in Exodus, the term is salvation. 
Salvation is God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Salvation is the biggest word in the Christian vocabulary of the people of God. And the New Testament, it's interesting because in the New Testament, it talks about the way being very narrow. And Jesus uses a parable of talking about it's easier to, for a rich person to go through the eye of a needle. And there's been all kinds of speculation about what all these things mean. But if you're a Hebrew person and you're hearing about Jesus talking about the road of life is very narrow, then you understand he's doing a play on words for who he is. Because the word salvation in Hebrew means to make the narrow road wide. So he's letting them know that the road is narrow, but he is making the road wide. He is their salvation. It's a powerful and dramatic narrative of God's working salvation. Because, you see, when we come to the Bible, we know that the Bible is not a history book for facts and figures and, and places. The Bible is not a how and when book at all. It was never meant to be. So if you argue using the Bible about how and when, you're never going to ultimately make sense because the Bible was never intended to be used that way. The Bible is not a how and when book. It is a who book. Who loves us? Who's in charge? Who created? Who sacrificed? Who raised from the dead? Who does this God love? It's a who book. And, it's, and Exodus particularly is a salvation history. It's a history of the salvation of God. In the book of Exodus, it gives identity to Israel, and it becomes an archetype for all redemption stories to come after. The one who comes and seeks liberation for all of those who are enslaved. The one who is willing to die. And ultimately, the one who is born again. And it's, ex it's extremely significant to note that this salvation story is laid out as a story. It's very significant for you to understand that. You know it's not an abstract truth. It's not a precise definition. It's not a set of bullet points or a catchy slogan. It's told in a narrative. It's told in a story. It's a story of a people and a story with, with figures who have names. It draws us into the plot and into the characters. It's with design for a personal relationship. Because, and, the, and the fact of the matter is behind that is that our salvation is not a bullet point or a formula or something that we do so that God does, so that we do, so that God does. Our salvation is a story of our relationship with God. It's a story which is an invitation to participate, first through our imaginations, then if, if we will, by faith, with our total lives in response to God, who has called us in the first place. So, the, as I said before, the Exodus story continues to be a, an incredibly important story. It's a major means that God uses to draw men and women in trouble out of the mess of history and into the kingdom of salvation. 
You know, I'm gonna, uh, we come to a time where we're reading scripture right now. And what I'd like to do is because I, I'm, I'm not going to assume that everybody reads scripture. I know that some of you do, maybe most of you do. But some people never really read scripture. And it's so great to read it once in a while. So we're going to read it a little bit back and forth. And it's not that way in your program, but it's that way on the screens. And first I'll start off, and then it'll say, all, that's you. So when you see all, you read. And we'll read the story together. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. The word of the Lord. By the way, you did a great job. Keep it up. When this text opens, the human race is in terrible trouble again. And the last time we actually heard from them in the sequence of the story, the last time we actually heard from the children of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob was about 450 years before with the death of Moses. And according to the story, that was the last time the people heard from God as well. So we have this 450-year gap in which now the uh, Hebrew people had been in Israel. And you can imagine what's happened. That's 
you know, twice as long as the United States has been in existence. So 450 years later, the uh, Hebrew people have, are, have been enculturated into the Israel, into the Egyptian culture, it, uh, worshiping the Egyptian gods, mediated with what they can and cannot do from their, uh, under, their faith understanding. They've been in poverty. They're enslaved. And you, so you get a glimpse, maybe, of how this might have happened and how the people have changed over time and lost and, and seem to have lost their way. But now they're crying out. They're desperate, and they're crying out to maybe remembering, wait a minute, wasn't somewhere way back when there a God, a God that our ancestors worshipped? So characteristically of this entire section is this ongoing conversation between Moses and God. And God, it seems, uses the natural gifts of Moses to, and gives continuity to Moses' life. Contrary to Moses' objections, he is really a leader. And it's very interesting how he goes about this. And there are so many lessons in this. And I want you to listen as we just, I mean, this is like, you know we're just ice skating over the very surface. And there are just, let me tell you, when we studied, I'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you, but when we studied um, Exodus, we studied it for a year and we ended it on chapter 18, 46 chapters. And we will finish it someday. But oh, the rich conversation and the layers and layers of, of uh, depth of insights and, and food for our daily living that, were, that is in this text. But notice how it's presented. God chooses a mountain in the wilderness, Horeb, which is a wasteland. And it's a place to a place of revelation. Moses' encounters take, takes place far removed from the sights and the sounds of religious community. There is no religious community around here. God chooses a, a very lonely spot with this sheep herder who was actually a fugitive because he had killed somebody back in Egypt. And it's 40 years later. So at least the text tells us it's 40 years. We know that in the Old Testament... 40 is this number that just means at the right time or the perfect time. 40 days of rain, 40, days, 40 years of Moses there, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days of Jesus. In the, you see the 40 is a very important number. Moses encountered, there's no temple, there's no sign of a holy place, and Moses is not a priest or a prophet. He's doing something very ordinary. He's doing something very mundane, the wilderness, the setting is wilderness, and Moses' vocation is very mundane. What does that tell you about what God chooses to do in different places? Because I guarantee you it won't be the last time that God appears to shepherds in the wilderness with an announcement of good news. It won't be the last time, and, and, and certainly it wasn't the first time. It wouldn't be the last time that God chose a non-traditional, non-religious setting for the hearing of the word, God would choose a rainbow at the end of 40 days to speak a word. God would choose on a mountain etched in clay. God would choose a still small voice instead of a wind. God would choose a garden where a young virgin sits. God would choose a Samaritan well with a single woman 
God would choose a beach at the Sea of Galilee. God would choose a cross that sit in the city dump. And the spoken word is the focus of this particular theophany, which is a visualization or coming to life of the, the God figure. And so in this particular, it's the voice, but it's accompanied by something that you see. And something that you see is just as important, not because of the miracle of itself, but because Moses was being asked not just to speak to the people, but to embody God for the people, for the people to follow him. If you follow God, follow Moses, because God is in Moses and Moses in God. Does that sound familiar? That's what the scriptures say. And then we have John and Jesus is saying, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. So God chooses to embody, to lead the people out of this uh, catastrophe that they're in, this mess, and chooses to embody Moses in a very different way that he embodies Jesus, but still to embody him. Humans are God's words made visible. That's what we are. We are God's words made visible. And that's why it's so important that we've been entrusted with the good news. It's, it's God made visible. And, God, and Moses' response couldn't simply be to say it. It had to be because Moses was going to have to lead them. He was going to have to physically be a part of this endeavor. So God uses nature as a vehicle of clothing for this particular reality. And Moses is commanded to remove his shoes on the holy ground. And it's important to understand that this is not about ground being holy. In our Reformed faith, when we have the elements, we know that this is bread and this is juice. This is, we don't believe that this becomes the living body or this becomes the true blood of Christ. We don't believe that because we don't believe that elements change. What we believe is that something incredible, mysterious happens in our doing it. And that's God's doing. So in the same way, the element of the ground was no longer holy, but what was holy was the fact that God was there. And this was made more holy by the fact that in the Middle East at that time around this region, there was this belief called territorial dominion. And in territorial dominion, what they believed was that, that their gods were, could only move around in a certain square. And once you left that, um, once you left that border, your God had to stay there and the next God took over. So God was, was confined. Their gods were confined to a certain space. And they couldn't move. And what God is saying here, all this way outside of Israel. So they believed up to that point that their God was left back in Israel and that they were held captive there. And God is saying, I'm not in Israel, I'm here. This is holy ground. Wherever I am is holy ground. And that's what he says. But now we're back to context. Because you have to understand something about Moses. He was raised in the Pharaoh's court. He uh, killed a, a, he murdered a, an Egyptian because he 
knew of his own faith, but also because it was social justice and he saw the Egyptian beating somebody else and, you know, and he went crazy and he killed him. And he's been in hiding for 40 years among the Midianites who were not followers of one God, who were followers of many gods. And it's a land that worshiped many gods. And this question that comes out of, the, out of the flames when he says to him, who shall I say sent me? He's actually saying, which God are you? Which God are you that sent me? That makes it a little bit more sense what God says after that. I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the same God. You didn't leave me in Israel. I came with you. I am here with you. It's just beautiful. Absolutely incredible. And it's not as puzzling about his response, which God are you, because we understand his context. He hadn't been around this for a long time. But that's not puzzling. But the way God answers has puzzled theologians across the generations. Nobody can settle on what it meant when God said, when God said those words that were translated in the, by the NRSV as, I am who I am. Those words which are, Eher, aser, aher. Now, it's very interesting that in many translations, it's I am who I am. In some translations, it's I am, I, I cause to be, which I cause to be. And some say is, it just is. But there's a, a Aviva Zornberg who is this wonderful, uh, uh, she's a rabbi, she's a uh, scholar, but more importantly, she's a Hebrew linguist. And what she says about this phrase is that it shares an, a very interesting nuance that is never translated into English. And that, that missing component is the element of forward or future. And what God is saying to Moses here, according to a, a Jewish mindset, is that God is saying, I am, I will be who I am, and I am who I will be. And that provides a larger picture because it says, I will be God for you. I, I am God. I will be God. Nothing will ever change about me. You will always recognize me. I'm not going to switch and bait you. I'm, if you see something horrible happening, don't mistake that for me. I am not that. I am who I, you can count on me. That's what he's saying to Moses. You can count on me, who being who I am. The God who created the world, the God who, who loves you so deeply, the God who will liberate you. This is who I am. I will be God for you. God will be God with and for all people, for all times. And the formulation suggests a divine faithfulness to self. Wherever God is being God, God will be the kind of God God is. It's wonderful. And that's the good news, that this is the God that we can count on, that we never have to challenge that. We never have to forsake it. And when crisis happens and the world falls out from underneath us, we are tempted to do that. And we say, where was God? If this is who God is, and we say all these, these things because of the, the wealth of emotion and the the terror that strikes us and the fear and everything. And when that happens, just lean into it. Lean forward and know 
who God is. That's why it's so important to know these texts and to know these scriptures and to live in, in them because they remind you of who God is. So God is recognizable. And, and I wonder, the next time that that question is asked, who are you? It, it, it's, a, it's put in a little bit of a different way. The question asked by Moses is, who are you? And God answers. And the question in the New Testament is asked by Jesus. Who do you say I am? After all these years, over all these centuries, after everything we've been through together, now who do you say I am? And before you answer that question, I would like for you to think about another question. And your answer can reveal the context of your life right now. If you could not answer that with words, how would your life speak to that question? Who do you say Jesus is? How does your life share with the world the answer to that question? Who do you say that I am? Let's go to God in prayer. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the story that goes on and on and on. And for our stories to be a part of this bigger, larger movement, always. And we pray a blessing on this moment in your name. Amen.